I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. So I've been doing this thing, given that it's like a billion degrees here in Kansas City, where I take my kids to movies in a theater where they serve dinner and booze. Do they do this in Minnesota? Yeah, it's called my apartment, or now my new house. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, congratulations on the house. You got the TV set up already, I see, okay? Uh, <laughs> Priorities. Right. So here's the thing with houses. First, you buy them and want to stay in them, and then, after a few years, you'll do anything to get out of them, which is why we go to the theater. We saw Incredibles 2 there, huge blockbuster. We've also seen Thor Ragnarok, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Black Panther, and Avengers Infinity Wars. Wait, how could you miss Deadpool 2? We're going to go back to that. In That's any case, not, you're no different. Eight-year-old cannot see Deadpool 2. That's not <laughs> happening. That, okay, so anyway, for years now, it seems like every summer is dominated by Hollywood reboots. Like this summer is Ocean's 8, Jurassic World, or the forthcoming Robin Hood, Scarface, and Predator, or movies based on popular cartoon superheroes like Ant-Man, Thor, or Your Avengers. This phenomenon is not limited to the movie world. So for our summer reading edition, we thought we'd take some time to explore the literary side of reboots, comics, and superheroes. In the second half of the show, we'll talk to the author and graphic artist Mira Jacob about the intersection of comics and literature. But first, we were honored to talk to Pamela Paul about literary reboots and her life as a reader. Pamela is the editor of the New York Times Book Review and oversees books coverage at the New York Times. She's the author of four books, The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony, Pornified, Parenting, Inc., and her most recent, My Life with Bob, Flawed Heroine Keeps Book of Books, Plot Ensues. She's also a fellow podcaster hosting the Inside the New York Times Book Review Weekly. Pamela, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. The book review recently ran a review of Carol Phillips' new novel, A View of the Empire at Sunset, which draws on Jean Reese's autobiography, Smile, Please, and her novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, which is itself a reboot of Jane Eyre. Could you talk about that review a little bit and maybe help us define what a literary reboot is as opposed to a sequel or a more general influence? Well, I mean, the interesting thing about a review of a book like that is that you need to make sure, from the editor's point of view, um, that the reviewer you give the book to is not only familiar with that writer, um, in this case, Carl Phillips, and uh, and that body of work, but then also with Jean Reese and knowing, you know, the the, the source material. Um, so uh, as a pure assigning kind of task, it's a little bit tricky. Right, so there's um, multiple layers there that you've got to make sure that they've, they've got a handle on. Yes, on top of all the things that you need to make sure of when making an, a, a review assignment in terms of avoiding conflict of interest and all of that. Um, so in this case, um, we were lucky and uh, and the, the reviewer pulled it off. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, uh, it's interesting when you talk about, about literary reboots because there are so many of them and people, you know, seem to, to reach back to the same material again and again, um, whether it's Jane Austen, but seen from the point of the view of the servants or, um, you know, a Greek myth, but viewed from the point of view of a lesser character or from a demigod rather than a god or from a narrator. Um, and, uh, and then obviously Shakespeare um, and the most recent um, example of that is the ongoing Hogarth series uh, which creates novelizations based on the plays. I don't know, for me, I'm more interested when reboots are sort of reconfigurations in another form yeah. um, to a novel based on a novel. I'd rather have a novel based on a play. I'm, I'm a huge fan of literary adaptations um, in film or um, as, as theater. I mean, in certain cases, the theater or, or the film can be far better than... Uh, than the the novel. I mean, the best example of that was um, Bridget, the uh, God Bridge Over Madison County, Bridges of Madison County. Oh yeah. Oh but right. I, yeah, I can. Was that? I never saw that movie. Was that a decent movie? Is that supposed to be good? Because the book was legit terrible. I did read part of that book. Okay, I did not read the book, so I am being very unfair here. Um, and well, I acknowledge. I'll be the one to say it was bad because I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not even close to getting out on a limb there. I don't think. Good. Okay, you've done that work for me then. Um, the, the book was actually pretty good, but what I thought was really great was the Broadway musical, which unfortunately didn't run for a long time, but it was uh, Jason Robert Brown uh, did the music, and it starred Kelly O'Hara and, uh, and um, gosh, I'm forgetting his name now, um, excellent uh, Broadway actor, Steve Pasquale. Um, and that was fantastic um, and, and couldn't have been better. And it almost made you want to believe that the novel was, you know, better than it than it probably was but to get back to the idea of like a literary adaptation or a literary reboot of an original literary work for me as a reader i find myself wanting to go back to the original as opposed to reading a modern reinterpretation of it i'm trying to think of ones that have worked best for me and i guess maybe the reason i wanted to talk about the uh, the Carol Phillips novels that White Sargasso Sea really did work for me, and that was a book that I, I may have read before I ever read uh, uh, Jane Eyre, um, and I thought that it was a powerful and interesting book, like on, on its own. But I just feel like it's really, really a hard, hard thing to pull off. Um, I did. Here's a list of things I wonder what you would have thought about this. 
uh, Margot Livesey has an essay about uh, reboots or paying homage, she calls it, to another piece of work. Um, and it's called Neither a Borrower Nor a Lender Be. And she lists, she has a friend who has eight answers for why to do one. One, to provide a contemporary update of older themes that often contradicts the original, which was sort of what you were mentioning. Sheer love, two. Three, to make a cultural critique. Four, to demonstrate political or other forms of social evolution. Five, to distill the earlier work. Six, to develop the traditions of a beloved forebearer. Seven, any combination of the above. Eight, as a joke. Uh-huh. I like the eight. Maybe the joke <laughs> ones are best. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, again, I I, I guess as a reader, approaching this as a, a, clearly as a reader, I find, first of all, that I'd rather read wholly original work. Um, or I would rather go back to the source material, or if I've already read the source material, I might be tempted to reread it. And and, uh, and I don't have enough time to reread as it is. Um, and so I would find, I don't know, like, would you be more tempted to read the Carol Phillips uh, reinterpretation of White Sargasso Sea or, or to go back to the John Reese? I don't know. I might do both. I don't know. Sugi, what do you think? Well, I think... I would probably do both. Um, I remember, I think I wrote my junior paper in college on Wide Sargasso Sea and also what, Faux by Katsia and just sort of like looking at a lot of texts like that. But then it just always sort of would keep leading me down a rabbit hole of different things that I wanted to read. I would just sort of associate and associate and associate. And it was sort of a great way to get in a strange way, like reading recommendations. And then... I would also end up associating, of course, texts that weren't so obviously the source material, but were sort of adjacent. Um, like I remember reading um, The Hours and then rereading Mrs. Dalloway and then rereading To the Lighthouse and then rereading The Waves and then rereading and then rereading. And I'm sort of an unapologetic rereader and will sort of go back to books like Favorite Blankets or something that I like certain passages, <laughs> even that I know well, right? You know, You're I'll be like, a Linus oh, you know, my- reader. Yeah. And just sort of, um, yes, I'm exactly, I'm the Linus reader. You know, that like there's a page in the giant's house by Elizabeth McCracken that I practically know by heart, but I like to physically open the book and reread the passage. And, um, I don't know if rereading is a form of, cause I'm a different person every time I reread those things. And so every time I reread, it's different. Um, I, but I suspect my own energy for that outstrips most people's. I do think the idea of rereading things and, and that you're a different person when you reread it is is really true and strong. I, I you know, I think of Anna Karenina, which I, I think if you read that book when you're sort of young and single, you think it's incredibly romantic. And like, of course, you know, she's meant to be with Vronsky and, and it all makes a lot of sense. And then if you read it and you're like newly married and, and heaven forbid, like a new parent, you read it and you think, like, this is terrible. Like, she's just abandoning her child who would do that you know and then if you reread it later in life it once again feels more understandable you know it's it really depends on on where you are um where you're coming from well that's sort of one of the key insights to to your book my life with bob and we want to talk to you about that book and have you read from it but i did have one last question here before we before we shift to that which is like whether we like the idea of literary reboots or not, which is a phrase that I think Sugi has made up. I don't know that this actually exists in the in the language. Do, do people use this around the offices at the New York Times Book Review, or is this something we made up? I, you know, I more frequently hear it, like, with regard to things like, to movie reboots, you know, like, Charlie's right. Angels, 
and and whatnot. Um, and and now, of course, especially with regard to recasting of of movies, I I don't think we use that term. I'm trying to think of what we internally use here when I think we say it's a riff on or it's um, I don't know, Sugi. Maybe you have to go out and trademark think- that term. I think I, I think I concocted it. All right. So uh, what I wanted uh, to ask though was, why do certain books? Do we have any? Whether we like them or not, do are there certain other reasons? Do we have reasons why everyone likes to redo Jane Austen or everyone likes to redo The Great Gatsby, which has been redone many times? Um, is there some quality that makes these books the thing that people keep going back to? Yeah, I mean they're they're the eternal themes and they're the originals. You know, like they're the. It, I mean, when Jane Austen was writing her novels, she was among the first. She was doing that. Who was, you know, writing a marriage plot. So everything, in a way, that's come after is in some way, you know, derivative of of Austen. And I guess what whether, I guess for some writers, what better challenge or in, interesting sort of thing to take on than to kind of directly confront that with a reinterpretation. But I think for readers, you know, they're they're it's I guess. I guess it's Sugi's Linus factor, you know, combined <laughs> with something that is, you know, quote unquote relevant or, you know, feels contemporary or, you know, speaks to the reader directly in terms of his or her own experience, which, again, for me as a reader is sort of the opposite of what I want to do, because I kind of want to get as far away from my own experience as I possibly can um, in terms of time and space and, and consciousness. Um but, you know, there are some people who would rather read about uh, Jane Austen or see a Jane Austen movie if it's set in, a, you know, Silicon Valley uh, or not Silicon Valley. Um, what's the other valley? Antelope? Oh, no. <laughs> um, the San Fernando Valley, like a San Fernando. Oh, oh, like the Valley Girls. Okay. Yes, I'm thinking Clueless, Clueless. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, look, we're Midwesterners. Sorry for the dead silence there for a moment. <laughs> Okay. You know, My wife's from San Francisco. She should have been here. She would have helped us out. Um, so one place to look for a good definition of the enduring qualities of any book is in your own book, My Life with Bob. And this is a book essentially about your reading life. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, could you talk to us about Bob and the role he played in your life and maybe read us a passage from the book? Sure. So Bob is not a person. Um, Bob stands for Book of Books. Um, and it's essentially a journal in which I've written down every book that I've read since I was 17, um, which I think was probably the only good idea I had at the age of 17 and probably the only thing I've <laughs> for that long. Um, but it essentially came out of the fact that, you know, like every other young girl slash aspiring writer, I thought of myself as, you know, a Joe or a Margaret who had to keep a diary, you know, like that's what you did. If you were a bookish little girl, you kept a diary. Um, and then, you know, in your deepest inner fantasies, like someday someone would discover your diaries and it would be like this treasure trove and it would be collected and like published and everyone would read them and, uh, and you know, treasure them forevermore. And of course the reality for me at least was that um, my diaries were terrible. Um, I couldn't even stand to read them and I, <laughs> and give up writing them, I, I would look back at my entries and they would just be like full of banal, emotional, you know, incidents of adolescence, fights with friends and disagreements and, you know, notes that I'd read that I wasn't supposed to read and betrayal. And, and the prose wasn't even good. There was like no sign 
of, of, of any kind of literary gift at all. And they made me feel terrible. Um, and every time I, I, I would go back and read these diaries, I would sort of give up that diary and start a new one. And so I, I still have them. I have like 10 diaries from my childhood that have like four pages or five pages <laughs> or like they were abandoned. And I was like, well, that's not the, that's not the diary for our posterity. I'll start a new one. And this one will have like a unicorn on the cover or whatever. Um, and, and at the age of 17, I basically abandoned that because I realized that what I was writing about in those diaries were the things that were going on in my life that I wanted to get away from. And often the way that I got away from those mundane personal uh, you know, events was to read about other people's lives. And um, so Bob became this journal in which after I read a book, I would write down uh, the author and the title, nothing else. I started it um, when I was 17 and I was spending a summer living in France. And, and weirdly, um, the first book that I put in there was Kafka's The Trial, which of course symbolically is an unfinished <laughs> book. Um, and, 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 and Bob is unfinished. Bob is like, that is only about a third of the way filled out. And it's funny because I used to be really paranoid that like I would finish Bob, you know, and then I wouldn't know where to go. Um, but I write really small in, in, in my Bob. And, uh, and so he's, he's got a way to go. I, I think like I'll, I'll like finish up the last page and, and die. Um, what is so. the book? What is the book made out of? Cause I, I keep journals too. And I have a, I go and buy these like hardcover, like blank, sketchbooks that you can get at like art supply stores for not that expensive. What, what, what do you use? So Bob is really unappealing looking. I mean, that's a kind of nice quality. I, to my, my mind about him and, and really made him like the anti unicorn rainbow diary for me. Cause it's just like a gray blank book. Like before you had sort of Moleskine and like bespoke diaries that you can get now in, you know, a Barnes and Noble. The only time that he has left my house in recent uh, memory is um, for a kind of special occasion that was really sort of scary for me. Um, and, and here is what happened. I took Bob um, to lunch with me uh, with Jeffrey Tubin, the writer uh, for The New Yorker and author of, of several best-selling books. And um, it was actually it was not my idea. It was uh, Jeff Tubin's idea. And that way it came about this. About a year before Bob, My Life with Bob was published, um, I was editing by the book, which is a, a profile interview we do in the book review. And Jeffrey Tubin had just published his book um, about Patty Hearst. And so he did a by the book. And early in the by the book, he revealed that he kept a book of books. And he explained what it was. And I was like, ah, Jeffrey Tubin stealing my thunder. Like you're this, you're, you're writing about my thing and my book has not come out. It turns out that he and I had been keeping a book of books starting the same year. Wow. Um, yeah. And so so he read My Life with Bob. Um, I, I saw him at some other event and, and uh, he, he read an early copy. And so he had this idea that we would meet for lunch and each bring our Bob. And I have to tell you, it was really nerve wracking. It was like, I don't know what the equivalent would be. It would be like, I don't know, like taking like your like your sister who's been like locked away in a mental institution or something bringing her to like a lunch with a stranger and like that person's weird like law i don't know it was just like it was a weird speaking of jane Eyre, yeah exactly i was just thinking and i was really shy because i was like how will my bob look compared to jeff tubin's bob 
Um, and anyway, it turned out it was great. And uh, especially because we had both started in 1987 and there were these interesting parallels in terms of we read a lot in common, um, surprisingly. And, you know, we each I certainly have like my weird book skeletons in my closet because it's, you know, it's not all Henry James in there. And uh, and, and, you know, he had his equivalent. So um, but that was an exception. And then and since then, Bob has been, you know, not locked up exactly, but he's in a corner in my office at home. I also had a number of spiral bound notebooks that had maybe the first three pages used either with tortured diary entries that were horribly written or like plays about orphans whose grand rich grandfathers would come and save them. Um, And then I had one sort of pink diary that had been given to me on a birthday and it had a key and everything in this sort of like very, um, very classic fashion and every time my family would move my mother would be like you have a stack of notebooks do you need them and I'd be like I definitely need them you definitely can't throw them away they're really important and she would say what kind of what's in them and you know and then I would open them and just be horrified by the quality of the prose and everything that they revealed about who I who I was as a beginning reader you know the kind of um, excess of Commonwealth literature. Like it was clearly like I was writing imitation Francis Hodgson Burnett as a play. Speaking of literary reboots. Um, Early writing is so embarrassing. You know, <laughs> I, I think about like starting like, I don't know, I, I want to say a Tumblr, which is something that probably doesn't even exist, but like a website where really famous, you know, high achieving writers like post really early bad examples of their writing, you know, like, like <laughs> there actually is such a website. <laughs> I was recently on it. It's called early work and you can read my terrible sequel to the Lorax in its entirety. Oh, wow. <laughs> you so put something bad. up there, Sugi? Oh, okay. We'll have yeah. to link to that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that, that. I love that idea. And, and, and like, I want also like the, the, the bookshelf version of that where you have like Martin Amos's, you know, guide to Atari games and like, you know, everyone sort of like Neil Gaiman, I think, was it? He did a biography of one of the people in Duran Duran. Like they're just these really, really weird early books that people write. You had this kind of a, a really amazing part that sort of relates to this reboot idea um, from My Life with Bob where you talk about having been a huge fan of the musical Les Miserables. And then finally reading the book. Um, and I wondered if you could uh, read that to us. All right. So this is from a chapter called Les Miserables. Each of the chapters in My Life with Bob is named after a book that in some way encapsulated sort of what was going on in my life, but also something about the reading experience. And so um, Les Miserables is a chapter um, about like what it is that we want from books. Why why do we read? Um, the book, unlike the musical, begins with the bishop Muriel and a portrait of moral goodness so powerful it had me in tears within pages. In the in the musical, Bishop Muriel is the man who offers refuge to the paroled Jean Valjean when no one else will shelter him, then covers up his crime when Valjean steals the bishop's silver. It is the bishop who sets Valjean on the path to redemption when he tells him that he must consecrate his life to God. In the musical, Muriel has a single scene. In the book, he has an entire life. I read on. Nothing could diminish the novel's drive. Though I knew nearly everything that would happen, I didn't know how it would play out. Each fateful decision filled me with trepidation and urgency. 
No, Fontaine, I wanted to cry out as I read, stay awake from that seductive young man. As Alfred Hitchcock once said of suspense, you can have two men sitting at a table when a bomb suddenly goes off, momentarily frightening the audience. Or, far more effective, you could have two men sitting at the table and show the audience that there's a bomb ticking under the table. The men continue to talk about baseball. The audience, complicit, is aware of what's going to happen. Don't talk about baseball, you want to shout. There's a bomb under the table. Knowing everything ahead in Les Miserables only prolonged the anticipation and heightened the emotion. The attenuated suspense was at times almost unbearable, like publicly watching trains collide in slow motion. For me, in that moment in time, this book had everything. There was refuge to be found in Muriel's goodness, solace in Jean Valjean's earned redemption, comfort in Cosette's happy ending. I was transported to another world in a way that enriched the quality of my own. At the end of each day, it was too heavy to lug on the train. I could remove myself from the details of quotidian existence, the healthcare forms, the Valentine's Day cupcakes, the work meeting, for altogether different challenges. How to ensure a child's well-being when you cannot provide for her. How to forgive a father you never knew and how to forgive a father you know well. How to pursue love without hurting other loved ones in the process. There was even a chapter featuring my thoroughly recognizable Rouen Bouteau. In place of childcare arrangements and deadline decisions, I could occupy my mind with larger questions. Can man change the course of his own life and the lives of others? How can religion both repress and uplift? How do revolutions succeed? There were startling parallels between the post-revolution tumult of France nearly two years earlier and the political and religious, and religious divide seizing Paris and the world today. In an extended aside about the dangers of monasteries, Hugo decried the effects of religious fanaticism. Hugo was for religion and against religion, referring to monastic life as the scourge of Europe. He denounced the violence so often done to the conscience, coerced vocations, feudalism relying on the cloister, the sealed lips, the inured minds, so many ill-fated intellects confined in a dungeon of eternal vows, the taking of the habit, souls buried alive. Centuries collapsed in his words. The proper response, Hugo wrote, was to resist the tide of superstition and fight back against fanaticism and militarism. He was writing about Paris then, and he was also writing about Paris now. Even elucidating aspects of the political and socioeconomic divides that trouble America today. Everything in this book resonated for me. So one funny thing about the time when I was reading this book is I was talking about it on my own podcast, on the, the book review podcast here at the Times, um, and I was joking that I was only reading books based on musicals because <laughs> I read... I had recently read Hamilton, um, and and now I was reading Les Mis, and I was just going to read stuff that was, you know, based on Broadway shows. And uh, I, so I joked about this, and I think I tweeted about it. And, you know, part of me was like, there's so little irony on Twitter sometimes that <laughs> I, I'm nervous You about don't this. say. And someone is going to take me seriously and be like, I cannot believe that the editor of the New York Times Book Review doesn't know that the musicals were based on the books, you know? And um, and so there was some random guy who like, who tweeted back at something and, and, and it seemed to be with um, a shared irony, but I also couldn't be sure. I was like, maybe he's taking me at face value. And we had this back and forth in which again, I wasn't sure if he was like in on the joke or 
completely not. So I finally clicked on his profile, and it turned out um, that he was playing Jean Valjean on um, on the West End uh, in London at that time. And so he <laughs> what he was talking about, and um, and somehow, like via Twitter, I don't know, we ended up getting into an email exchange, and uh, I had mentioned, I think, on the podcast that I was traveling to London. And so he was like, when you come to London, come to the show. So I ended up going to the show with my daughter and he took us backstage after. And so, I don't know, somehow there was like this very nice uh, little circle of life there. That's so funny. It seems to me that your description of the pleasure of encountering Hugo's masterpiece and even kind of like that exchange you describe with the actor, right? Knowing the plot already, the sort of like the in-joke of of knowing the plot already accurately describes many of the reasons why people like reboots. Like, I don't know if you've seen, I think Deadpool is the movie that I can think of that sort of most capitalizes on this and the sort of Wait, in joke of this, you're this going movie from is Les miserable to Deadpool. Is that what's happening? Right <laughs> I like now? to think that we're, we're the high low, we're the high low podcast. We can do it all. Definitely um, our sort of like, midsummer you know, podcast. <laughs> well, this is supposed to be the summer blockbuster podcast. So I was I was at the drive-in where I saw Deadpool too, and um, I was with someone who hadn't really doesn't really like comic book movies and had sort of been dragged to it, and then was sort of surprised at how much they liked um, the in joke of the the movie was making the sort of in joke of all of these other movies at the same time, and that sort of the shared the pleasure of entering into a conversation where you already have this certain amount of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, you describe um, it as this sort of suspense of, uh, you know, like a watch of it's like helplessly watching trains collide in slow motion when you know what's going to go wrong. I mean, I, I do feel like that's some of what the pleasure is of, of books like that. And that's true. Even when you just to, you know, we're going to talk about these big blockbuster superhero movies later in the show, but you know, most of those are based on books and on comic books that many viewers have already read and know the plot to, you know, I just think it's, you know, it's an interesting thing when you know the ending, right? And I think that's interesting for readers and for writers when you know the ending. And sometimes that's done in an original work of fiction or with a fiction based on reality. And the most recent example I can think of that was Leila Slimani's novel, The Perfect Nanny, which came out earlier this year and was based on, you know, loosely based on a true crime that took place um, here in New York in which a, a nanny murdered two of the children that were in her care and of course she recently right. was, was was found guilty of that crime um, in the trial this year and so the first sentence is you know starts with the, the children's death and in talking to Slimani about like why she made that choice you know it it it's um, it's a very different kind of mystery because you already you know, in a different kind of suspense and a different kind of unanswered question, because you already know what happened. What you don't know is why and how how you got there. So in a way, you know, with Les Miserables, it was that situation. Um, but because it was, of course, you know, a musical that condensed, I think, a 900-page novel into, you know, three hours or whatever it is, um, so much was missing. Um, and so you have, like, in, in the musical, for example, you start off with Marius as a young adult, and you don't really know any of his backstory, except for very light illusions in the songs. Um, and in the book, of course, you learn not only his story from his childhood on, but his father's story 
which is, again, it's all that how we got here that uh, that you wouldn't know, um, even if you'd seen the musical, you know, an embarrassing four times like some people had. <laughs> So on the on on your podcast, New York Times review uh, book review podcast recently, Alexandra Alter gave a pretty scary report on the drop in literary fiction sales. Um, I wonder if this is connected. I mean, do you think that maybe people are doing uh, reboots be- for the same reason Hollywood do- would does them because maybe they'll sell better or because they're familiar material, and so there's a way of protecting your investment in a product. Um, I wondered if, if you thought that happened. Oh, I'm not that cynical about layers. No, we're too high-minded and good for that. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I'm that cynical. <laughs> with literary fiction, I don't think that. No, I mean, I hope not. I don't think so. You know, and it, and it is true. I'm all joking aside that um, you know the sales of of books overall, the number of books that people read um, has gone down. Um, even though I, I do remain bullish about leading overall um but i don't think that i don't think reboots is a is a way to solve that i think that for people who do like that kind of familiarity um there are authors who have a formula i mean it happens especially in genre and again this is not saying anything bad about it um but it's it, it gets to that linus factor combined with you know something new um you know agatha christie is a perfect example there are a lot of really great agatha christie books but you know, there is a certain formula to many of them. And that's part of why people like them. Um, they want to, they want to, you know, revisit the, that, that same setting. I mean, in a way, um, I think serial television is mimicking the novel in that, you know, you get to be with characters longer in settings that you like to be, spend time in. There are a lot of really great literary writers uh, who, who do create some kind of related world you know, even if it's not a series per se, I mean, Kate Atkinson, for example, um, right. while uh, she does have a series of, of, of crime novels, um, her Jackson Brody series, her literary novel, um, Life After Life, then had not a sequel per se, but her next novel did take place in, a, in that same world and had some overlapping characters. And I find that is happening more and more often, you know, that, that writers will create uh, sort of an era um, or, or a setting with, with a larger framework. I mean, frankly, that's Thomas Hardy, right? And, and Faulkner. Right. Um, so it can be very literary. Yeah, I was just thinking about Faulkner. Even, um, you know, these TV adaptations are things where they're sort of making series fit into novel form. And Anne of Green Gables was remade recently. And, you know, her version of it was bringing Anne into this kind of safe world. She had endured this childhood of some abuse and had landed uh, with with guardians who would take care of her. And the remake was sort of went so much darker. So people seem to be looking to series for safety, but also sort of using them to explore darker themes of those older works that kind of went unplumbed, like The Handmaid's Tale that's airing now is so much darker than the book. I mean, I, 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 I think that there's definitely something to that. I mean, there's something to the fact that the books that people turned to right after the election, for example, um, were books that were published, you know, decades ago, 1984 and Brave New World, um, The Handmaid's Tale. You know, it's like people turned back for whatever reason 
to you know early dystopian fiction, um, and and now I think you're seeing new iterations of those same that dystopian strain um, that that you know in, in, since then uh, that also feel really timely. Pamela, thanks so much for coming on the show with us. Um, we loved listening to you read, and, and it was a real treat to hear your take on reboots. Well, it was a total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. We're thrilled to talk to Mira Jacob about the intersection of literature and comics. Mira is the author of an acclaimed, of the acclaimed novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, and she has a popular column on Shondaland. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Guernica, and BuzzFeed, among others. Her graphic memoir, Good Talk, Conversations I'm Still Confused About, will be released next year. Welcome to the show, Mira. Thank you. We're so happy to have you on the show today. As someone who has moved from writing a literary novel to using illustration and collage, I know you've thought about the popularity of comics. It seems like this genre that used to carry a stigma of being geeky or juvenile has gone totally mainstream. So I'm kind of a nerd for comic book movies, the latest Avengers movie to Ant-Man and the Wasp, films based on comics are being released, it seems like, all the time. So what is it about comics and graphic novels and memoirs that makes... Um, sorry, graphic novels that makes these films so popular at the box office. You know, what's funny is I, I, I keep thinking about this idea of the way that we take in visual information and the rate that we take in visual information. And specifically for me, a lot of it has been a transition from writing a novel to doing graphic work and the sort of release that it's given my brain to do that. So when I think about why this happens and, um, and why we sort of gravitate toward why we're why we're in a moment where we gravitate to those two things. I feel like it's sort of synthesizing the intellectual need of our brain with a need to get information at a rapid clip. I feel like that's why these books are emerging in the way that they are right now. I feel like we've given ourselves free license to access both of those parts of our brain. Andrews McNeil is a publisher that is that is based here in Kansas City, and they publish a tremendous number of graphic novels and cartoons and comics. That's been part of their deal for a long time. Like they published Ziggy, you know. Yep. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. So they're fighting, trying to figure out how to make stuff work online. It's a little difficult. It hasn't been like. So in other words, you're saying this is a way of of, of you know processing Im- uh, uh, information faster, and yet. It doesn't seem ideally suited to an online environment, which is what you would normally think. The only the only real information I have about this is when I put something up online, I can kind of drill down and see what the numbers are, right? So, mm-hmm. and that's been really interesting. You don't have that's um, better information than I have. So yeah. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, so what you know what's been kind of fascinating for me is which of the pieces go viral and why and how. Um, And so I haven't actually found that to be true, meaning I have found that people really do when there's something um, that that my work is sort of saying when it's hit a nerve, I feel like those do go actually really far and wide. What's harder is the quieter work, but that's always harder. Right. right? You're the person who I see most often online posting graphic work. And I was thinking about your columns at Shondaland. Those are usually like roughly the length of what would have been like a daily strip cartoon, right? I mean, that's like five or six panels, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, I aim for about seven, right. What's interesting to me is that I don't ever see the old form cartoons that still exist and are out there 
posting in that way. Like, I don't know where they are or what they're doing. And that seems like that would work online. Longer graphic novels, I think, are a little bit harder. And I'm not sure how that would work. Like, you know, can you get a Kindle version of Persepolis or something like that? Does that work? You can. Okay. You can, totally. And actually, with my next book, they they have the online rights as well. And I'm really curious about that because with my novel, that's where I sold the most, right? Like, that's where people... I feel like it was a heavy book, so people just sort of, it was easier in an electronic form. But I'm really curious about that for this, because I feel like so much of my experience with this medium is staring at a page, like not a screen, a page, staring at the page and seeing how it's laid out and kind of feeling it, feeling it in my soul. Just go with me for a second. The way that the way that we used to feel albums for music, where you oh, listen yeah. to the whole album, and you'd be like, it's this song, and then it's this song, and then it's this song. So you feel the wholeness of the piece. That's the way that I relate to this work. So it's really strange. I feel like I don't know if I'd feel the same way about it on a screen. Yeah, yeah. Some of the kids I know who read a lot are reading, actually, they're reading books with characters from the comics. I'm not even sure that they know the characters originated in the comics. Like, I saw a kid the other day. Yeah, like a kid. I mean, do you remember the strip Big Nate, which is not even, like, that old of a strip? Yeah. Yeah, big, I mean, Big Nate was like, introduced in the Washington Post, like maybe when I was in high school. And um, I saw a kid the other day reading what I think was a Big Nate chapter book. I don't think she knew it was in the comics. Um, and I did not know that it existed as a chapter book. So these characters seem to be moving um, between, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't know if Big Nate exists in the Washington Post anymore. I have no idea. That's such a that's such a spooky and kind of amazing idea that a that a character can travel from a kind of defunct uh, column into a different sphere and space. I sort of I love I love the idea of that even if even if everyone else isn't picking up on the on the connective tissue in between. That's such a great I just like the idea that they could live forever. I don't know. There's something like that to me. <laughs> I mean, I always really liked that strip. So I, was, I had this sort of deep nostalgia watching her read it. And then, but then she, she had no idea that it came from, I don't think she had any idea that it came from this tradition. My son always is saying to me the most ridiculous, what did he say to me the other day? Some random song came on the radio. Oh, right. It was, um, it was Justin Timberlake. And I said, oh, Justin Timberlake. And he goes, how do you know who Justin Timberlake is? And I was like, what are you talking? Like, A, that's... <laughs> You know what I mean? I was like, Zakira, that was like of my generation and frankly not the best music. But of course I know who he is. Like that's it's not like it just it's not like he just came into being. I feel like kids have that little part of them where they're like, it's all for me. I had my whole huge Marvel Comics collection, all the Avengers, all the X-Men, all this stuff that I had read um, and gone back to. And in fact, Suki uses the term uh, 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 comfort blanket of, you know, reading material in in our previous uh, talk with Pamela. And, uh, you know, in a way, the Avengers comics were like that for me. Um, I, I like the X-Men better, actually. But, you know, and so bringing out the box of those and showing them to my kids when they saw their first actual Marvel movie, and they were like, oh, this is where that came from. They were totally amazed. You know, and they're like, God, the writing is really small, man. How did you read that stuff? <laughs> That's amazing. I can't okay, read so it anymore. Anyway, <laughs> did they did they pick up those? Did they pick up your comics and read through them, or did did they kind of look at them and then move on? Uh, yeah, they did read them. They would go through periods. They they never became as obsessed as I was, where I read those. Like I figured out, I got them in episode order, and I read through the entire stories. You know, they had long arcs that went over several books. You know, yeah, they never really did that, but they 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 did. Like they'll occasionally be like, "Can we get the comics out and read those for you know bedtime?" And we'll do that. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Because I, I feel like sometimes um, the great disappointment to me of the modern world is that these things that held an intense amount of magic for me don't translate for some reason for my child. And I feel like, how can you walk away from this magic world? And But I feel like his magic just comes from different places now. And so part of this part of it's weirdly part of doing this um, book was in some ways I was trying to make sense of conversations I was having with him, but it was also trying to do it in a way that would make sense to a mind like his right. as well. Does that make sense? Sure. So also in our conversation with Pamela, uh, I think Whitney or maybe it was Pamela dubbed me a Linus reader because I was referring to my love of rereading and how certain books are kind of like blankets for me. Uh, and certain passages I like to go to. And I think actually I'm maybe not only a Linus reader, but also a Linus watcher. So the first Christopher <laughs> Reeves Superman film came out in 78. I can like quote huge chunks of that. Oh my God. And Here we go book. with the DC stuff. I can't And, um, you know, I think a book that I Linus read is Cavalier and Clay and, and that book and Jonathan Lethem's Fortress of Solitude. What impact do you think those books had on the public perception of comics? Yeah, you know what? It's so funny because we were we were briefly talking about that the other day. I feel, you know, I and when you're saying that, do you mean you mean specifically like when Tanahasi Coates is writing Black Panther and when Roxane Roxane Gay is um is writing like when those big names come to comics? Is that what you mean? Like the entry point for um, well-known authors to then get involved with comics? Is that what you're talking about, or is it something? I think else? that's Whitney's. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll, that's maybe your that's theory. my theory, which is I just sort of felt like I remember, and I have this uh, this uh, review sitting here by Jay McInerney of uh, the book that Lethem published after Fortress of Solitude. It was called Men in Cartoons, and and Lethem, I mean, sorry, McInerney in the in the review says, look, I didn't like that that book, Fortress of Solitude. I didn't think it should have the superhero stuff in it. I, I thought it should be realism, and there was, I remember, whatever you thought of the book in itself, and it's a very complicated book, but I remember there was part of it was that people weren't sure, someone like McInerney, who's a realist writer, weren't sure that you could make people superheroes in a book. Do you know what I mean? Like, actually mm-hmm. do it, put a ring on, mm-hmm. make them fly. And I felt like, or that, or that such things, and, and in fact, the kids, of course, talk about the Marvel comics in the book a lot, and it's an important part of their sort of personal mythology, and that would come back... You know, in, in like Oscar Wilde, that's that's an important thing too, right? And 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 so I felt like that introduction of those two books, the Shaven and the and the Lethem, were the earliest books that I remember a, a, a literary writer saying to me, "Hey, that box of Avengers comics you got that you've read every single one five times can be a literary artifact too." And I had not thought of that. That's interesting. I wonder because I feel like. I understand how those two books, I understand how somebody would come to those two books and say that was the moment where I realized it too. But in the way that stories, especially those first stories that we read and the first stories that we really, they live in this kind of, in this deep, deep part of us that that kind of loves them forever in the, in the Linus way, like loves them in a deep and abiding way and never gets sick of them. I always think that, I always think that people come to those stories because those were the first stories they knew. And in some ways, the reason that they return to them and the reason that they would want to write them again is because that is, that is the first instance of that kind of magic in their life. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's a return to something that feels absolutely natural. 
Um, and it's a pathway that is well-worn and constantly surprising. I guess I'm just trying to pick the point. I feel like, look, I have, the other thing is I think that the, the, I feel like literary culture made comics cool in a way that I think was related to and helped with this new boom of comics. Now, Sugi's theory is different, which is like they were always making DC movies, so there never was a boom. And this Marvel <laughs> thing is an aberration. Hey. But I'm going to say that there has been a boom in the last since the first, uh, you know, like Iron Man movie. We're like, you know, we're making a ton of these and it become they become hugely profitable franchises. But I feel like before that, actually, literary culture started to think about comics and sort of make them more mainstream. Sure. I mean, but also, don't you think comics are in some way the kind of the, the myths that we that are like of America in the way that other countries would have would sort of tie themselves more to religion. I feel like our comics are so much about. I'm laughing because that's true, not because I think it's wrong. No. So I feel like that's I feel like that's partly where this comes from is that kind of that need that need for a creation story mm-hmm. and what does that look like and what does that look like through the lens of democracy and through the lens of capitalism and through the lens of you know fighting through World War 1 and 2 and and what does that tell us about ourselves how did all those heroes come up and what did they reflect to us about our you know American soul that's that's where we got all that information. So it makes sense to me that that would be the source material and that we'd have to go back to that again and again, right? Yeah, I mean, and that feels to me like what you're talking about, what Cavalier and Clay is, you know, very explicitly about. Before we go any farther talking about these these two books, I just want to give everybody a sort of a brief synopsis in, in case they haven't read Fortress of Solitude or Cavalier and Clay. Now, Fortress of Solitude is, is set in like the 70s, there are two main characters, uh, a young boy named Dylan Edbus and his friend Mingus Rude. They're friends. Dylan's white. Mingus is black. Um, and it's about them growing up in this Brooklyn neighborhood that is beginning to gentrify. And we all know what happened to Brooklyn now. Um, and so and the, the, the superhero parts of it are, first of all, that these kids and other friends of Dylan's are huge. Dylan's particularly also a huge Marvel Comics fan. But they also they find a ring that allows them to fly and they sort of create a real make themselves into a real superhero that they call Arrow Man. And Cavalier and Clay is about two cousins, one born in the United States and one who comes to his his American cousin's house um, fleeing uh, World War II and the Holocaust in Europe. And the two of them team up, uh, Sam, Clay, and Joseph Cavalier, and begin a comic called The Escapist. And this takes you through a lot of sort of thinly veiled history of the comics in that era. Some of this also has to do with um, the history of how comics were subject to scrutiny about like what sorts of hidden content they might be having, they might have, um, what kinds of politics they might be putting forward, and also like what quote unquote hidden agendas do they have about the sexuality of their heroes. So um, there were trials about the decency of comics and Part of that is also in Cavalier and Clay, and it also takes on uh, the role of women in the comics industry. So Joe's girlfriend, Rosa, is also a major character. Um, I could talk about this book for a long time, but I will stop. I love it so much, and it won the Pulitzer. (laughs) (laughs) So 
I have to tell you, I didn't, um, I didn't get through Fortress of Solitude. It was just one of those books that I, I, I understood because my husband was going crazy about it and said it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. I felt like he had the relationship with it. His relationship with it was so big that there's almost no room for me. Like I tried a couple <laughs> times. And I was like, okay, it's not taken off between us. I don't know what's happening. Um, well, you and Kate Cavalier- McInerney, he admits in this review that he didn't finish that book. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I feel good about that alignment or not. Um, no, that's okay. Um, this is hilarious. Um, but I, but Cavalier and Clay, I think you know it. Obviously, it really affected me in the way that it made me reimagine every single corner of the city, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of a beautiful. That was a beautiful thing, and I think that's very similar to what obviously comics do for us. But wait, I have a question. Because it seems that I don't know if this came up with Pamela Paul, but are you guys actively in a DC Marvel fight? Oh yeah, I okay. I think we are. I mean, I fell asleep in Thor Ragnarok like two nights ago. Oh my god! <laughs> um, I think I just like I really I grew up on Christopher Reeve's Superman in like a way that I can't even really explain, and I think is like heavily influenced by my older brother. But I think I am much more attached to that movie now than he is. Um, like everything that I watched with him, I just am, was deeply, I mean, along with Star Wars, um, Indiana Jones, just sort of like a lot of those 80s adventure movies, many of which mm-hmm. drew on comic tropes, um, really got into my system in a way that is um, very strange for someone who writes literary fiction, mostly about the Sri Lankan Civil War. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've liked some of the Avengers movies, but for me, Superman is that American mythology that I can't get away from and frankly don't want to. And I, I think, I guess, Winnie, for you, it's like, I don't know, Captain America? No, not, I like the <laughs> X-Men. The, uh, I feel like the X-Men's like mutant, uh, you know, like people hating them for being mutants. That, that plot line to me is the, is the most interesting part of Marvel Comics and to me is more interesting than things that tend to appear in DC. Right, right, because that's the, well, that's, that's the subculture, right? It's the idea of of the antihero, right? Not the or hero, and it allows them to think about things like that that are endlessly important in American society, like race, like how groups are separated mm-hmm. off and and, mm-hmm. and quarantined from the population and all that sort of stuff, you know, I find to be really interesting. That's why I like the X-Men. I mean, I like the X-Men. I think they're just sort of like Christopher Reeves plus Cavalier and Clay maybe really entrenched me in DC culture in a way that I never really recognized until this episode of the podcast. I just didn't know. I didn't know if this was an ongoing battle no, between yeah. you guys. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's, it's sound, you, it's uh, like... where, where are you on this, Mira? Speaking of which. <laughs> I, I don't have a hard line, you guys. I really don't. I feel like, I feel like I'm the marriage counselor right now. I see value in both. I do. <laughs> but my son, it's funny though. My son, um, my son falls hard on the Marvel line and he tells me about it a lot he kind of pontificates about what what it means and what it means for um, what it means for America insofar as a 9-year-old would have that idea you know what i mean you're working on a graphic memoir that's coming out next year um how do you decide to start writing a graphic memoir yeah well so what happened was um my son was obsessed with michael jackson in the same moment, he was six, that he was figuring out that he was brown. And in the 
same moment that Trump was starting to rise in America. Ferguson was happening. Um, Trump was starting to rise. And there was this kind of general, there was this incredible um, racial unease, which has always been there, but that was becoming obvious to even a six-year-old. And so he was asking me what we did when my son was obsessed with Michael Jackson. And I thought this was a brilliant parenting move at the time. I didn't want him doing that thing where he would skip songs the way you can on all of our little gadgets. So I bought him the record albums and a record player because I just wanted him to listen to them kind of one at a time and not drive me crazy. And what happens when you do that, when you buy your six-year-old child huge uh, albums of Michael Jackson, if you line them up all in the row, you get great questions like, what color is Michael Jackson anyway? <laughs> and um, so anyway, I mean, I can read you a bit of that um, to put it into context for you. But but what happened in that conversation is that he asked me these really hard um, questions. And some of them were really harrowing. And sometimes I would go to sleep at night um, just shaken to my core. And what I would normally do with that kind of information is write an essay but I also was, I think I was reading a lot of stuff online and I was realizing that in those essays, it was like people would read those essays waiting with, for the sentence that would tell them that they could dismiss it entirely. And then they would write in the comments the sentence in which they dismissed it entirely. Mm-hmm. And so even in the setup of telling people about what your life was like, people were looking for ways to just right off the bat say, well, that, you know, just because she said it this way, I'm not going to listen to the rest of it. And And I was furious about that. And when I was trying to write it, I kept seeing those sentences. I kept seeing the sentence that would trigger people to to decide to to just dismiss it. And and so then I got one day I was just sitting there and I realized the thing that I most wanted to share was what he was actually asking me. I didn't want to frame it for people. I didn't want to worry about what they thought. I didn't want to perform for them. I just wanted to say what he was saying to me so somebody else could hear it. So I drew us on a piece of paper. I drew a picture of him and a picture of me. And then I cut us out. And then I took his Michael Jackson albums. I was at the kitchen table. And I spread them out on the kitchen table. And I started, um, I started putting us on top of the albums and then, and then writing out the dialogue and then cutting it into bubbles and placing it on top of the album covers. And it was really... Um, I spent hours doing this. And you can actually see it online at BuzzFeed, that first that first kind of iteration of it. But it was so cathartic to not have to set it up. It was so cathartic just to let the conversation be the conversation and to not and the and the other thing is is that I don't draw characters that are crying. I don't draw them laughing. I draw them with very straight faces. And there's so much relief in that for me too. Just the idea of not begging someone to understand my pain, not, not again, performing how wrecked I feel, but letting the viewer read these lines. And then if I'm not crying on the page, they have to hold on to it. And it felt really good to do that. That's great. That's a great story. Can you, can you talk us through slash read us a little bit from that book, which I am so looking forward to? So I'm going to read you. This is um. We're making this. her do this, listeners. This is she tried <laughs> not to do it, and we made her um, do it. So if it doesn't work, it's our fault. Okay. So the way that I'm going to explain this to you is so that the 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 um the artwork in the back is all um, album covers. 
The trouble began when my six-year-old son, Z, became obsessed with Michael Jackson. What is obsessed? Like, into. Really, really, really into? Yeah, I'm obsessed. Six-year-old plus Michael Jackson obsession equals a lot of questions. Who taught him to dance? Is that how people really walk on the moon? What is the Jackson 5? Did he lose his other glove? What is a Latoya? Is his skin like my skin? Is his hair like my hair? At first, the questions were pretty basic. Who is better, Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan? That's apples and oranges. No, Michael Jackson is a human singer and Michael Jordan is a human... Oh my God, stop, Michael Jackson. Then the questions weren't basic. Was Michael Jackson brown or was he white? Well, he was black, but his skin was brown, and then it turned white. He turned white? Yes. Are you going to turn white? No. Am I going to? No. Daddy? Daddy's already white. But was he always? I'm East Indian, and my husband is Jewish. We've lived on the same block in Brooklyn for almost two decades. A lot of mixed-race kids live on our block. A lot of everybody lives on our block. Do I look like Nick? Mm, little. He's black and Russian. What about Claudine? She's Korean and Chinese. What about the guy on the corner who's always falling asleep while he's standing? The who? Oh, yeah, no, you don't look like him. Every time Z asked me a question, I would remember all the times I had asked similar questions growing up, all the things I'd been told, all the things that still didn't make sense. In August, an unarmed teenager named Michael Brown was shot and killed by a Missouri cop. By fall, protests against police brutality were shutting down the streets of New York. Is it bad to be brown? What? No, it's great being brown. We look good in colors. We have history. We don't get skin cancer as easily. Why are you yelling at me? I don't know. The TV said the police killed a kid named Ferguson because he was brown. His name was Michael Brown. He was black. He was killed in a town called Ferguson. By a white police? Policeman, yeah. Ferguson is far away, right? And then there's this last one. Are white people afraid of brown people? Sometimes. How do you know? What? How do you know which ones are afraid of you? Mommy, how do you... You don't always. Is daddy afraid of us? No. No. Um, Mira, thanks so much for that reading, which... Uh, with that picture is also amazing. So you talked a little bit about how you began doing that project. And can you talk about that section in particular, the, that last section that you read about Michael Brown? Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that is, is really hard to explain to people is how your racial consciousness sort of dawns. Um, and how you learn, like we all, we don't start out this way. We don't, meaning like people of color, I'm talking about myself here. I didn't start out, um, feeling like understanding my place in the world immediately. And I think it obviously came to me slowly. And what was hard, um, with Zakir was I was watching it actually happen. I am watching it happen, watching it happen right now. He's nine years old. And the president does not like people that look like him. It's awful. Um, 
and I was watching the sort of dawn of this thing that I think I just had thought was somehow part of my inheritance at birth. And, and when I saw how he was not that thing, when I saw the ways in which he did not feel like he did not deserve the love and compassion and understanding that anyone would. And then I saw him kind of starting to recognize some things. Like I remember one day I was walking with him and he said, you know, people are a lot nicer to me in stores when I'm with daddy. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 I guess that's, yep, sure. And he said, is it, um, is it because you're brown? And I said, well, it might be, you know, it might be, it might be, it might be because I'm a mommy and not a daddy. And he said, why do people not like mommies? And I said, well, I don't, you know, it's just, I think people tend to feel more sympathy toward daddies. And he goes, but why? Mommies do everything. Um, which made me laugh. But seeing that take, seeing those things take root in him and knowing that they came, it wasn't like it just came through, you know what I mean? It wasn't like it it came down from the heavens and it suddenly sank into his body. It came from legitimate places. I watched it happen. I watched the nightly news take a hold of his brain. I watched this shouting orange man enter his consciousness in a way that made him doubt himself. And, and it was really awful. The best way that I could sort of tap into that was just the questions he had, because the questions he had were, it was a little bit like trying to explain to somebody from outer space what racism was. It was like, these are the, the rules that we inherited. And I spent a lot of time trying not to tell him that stuff, frankly. I spent a lot of time trying to keep the possibilities open for him um, and keep things not on the bleakest terms. But the world is a really rough place to do that at this moment. Yeah, and listening to you talk about this, I'm realizing, I mean, we also spoke um, a little bit earlier about you and I both grew up reading comics that were connected to Hindu mythology. And also, um, I read Tintin, and I think you said that you read Asterisk. Ah, yes. I knew I was going to do that. Asterix. It's Asterix. so hard. Asterix. Asterix. Um, I read Tintin, and you read Asterix. And those are French and Belgian, respectively. And Tintin, sort of, when I look back at Tintin with adult eyes, I mean, it's pretty colonial. And when I think about the fact that I kind of imbibed that unthinkingly, and I think, I don't know that my parents read Tintin. I think I checked Tintin out of the library because my friends were reading it. And sort of the stuff that, I mean, it's different. I mean, you're watching your son taking stuff from the news and you know that he's doing it. And when I think about the stuff that we read in comics, um, some of which put forward sort of ideas about my worth or what sorts of cultures were visited and who were the visitors, where, where did you have adventures and who got to have them? Um, those came from the comics too. Yeah. You know, what's so funny is I realized that almost everything that I knew about Europe uh, came from Asterix comics for, for quite, for perhaps too, too long. Um, because it, because it so relies on stereotypes and, um, and it made me, it made me, it was, it was kind of a relief to be told this stuff because I felt like it was knowledge that maybe other people just had about how the world works and I had no framework for. 
um, similar to like everything in American history as well. When you have parents who are immigrants and they're not going to tell you a lot about their own country because it doesn't have a huge impact on your life and they don't know a lot about the country that they're in, meaning my parents knew some, but they certainly hadn't learned a ton about it um, in school, nor had they learned a lot about Western Europe. Um, getting that information feels precious in this weird way. It feels like a an entry point into into the rest of culture. Sure. And I think, I mean, I probably, yeah, also learned a lot about Europe from Tintin. Um, and then we both also read Amar Chitra Katha and I was just moving house and I, I actually found one that I had purchased in some, purchased in some South Asian shop, probably Amazing. actually somewhere in Europe and um, had held onto under the guise of research. But so for our <laughs> listeners who don't know what that is, can you, can you tell tell them a little bit about what Amar Chaturkhada is? I mean, I, I, you know what's so funny? When you, when you said that the other day, I was like, oh, that's what it was called. This is the way that I learned those comics. When I was in India, I was always a little bit out of my skin. I was, um, I was frankly, like my, my actual skin color among my family was um, dark enough to make people very anxious about my presence a lot. Um, and so my mother would go to the store and buy me the comics so that I could basically hide in some hot room under a fan and read about all of these Hindu gods, which was fascinating for me because my family's Christian. And so we didn't, I, none of this meant, it had no, there was no purchase in me. There was no place, there was no context for any of this. When I would go to kind of a uh, temple or whatever, this was often the way that you would get told Hindu mythology would be with kind of um, books that would have comic-like illustrations. And then eventually you would sort of get an Amar Chaturkada. But I think I actually only had that one. Um, among my Indian American friends, it was pretty ubiquitous. And then eventually I came to realize that they're pretty popular in Sri Lanka too. Um, I think as a, a kid growing up in suburban Maryland, I didn't really have them. Those those myths, I, I wasn't like the two of you. I wasn't reading all of those um, comics my entire life. I've sort of done the adult catch up because it was a section of, of the kind of of the common culture I didn't have a ton of access to. So I've done the thing in retrospect, but I see it all the time. I mean, I see it, I see it in the, in the intensity with which people will discuss, hence your DC Marvel war, um, will discuss their allegiance to, to one framework or another, or one hero or another, and how much it told them about who they were in the world. Mira, thanks so much for being with us. It's such a treat to get this a wonderful preview of your book, which I cannot wait to read and which I think is going to kind of remake American mythology in this terrible era that we're currently in. (laughs) We can only hope. It's out in March, so wait a little bit. Thanks so much, Mira. Thanks for having me, you guys. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Our intern producers are Aaron Saxon and Kevin Coder. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. We'll post a link to the books we reference this week at our LitHub show page, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading, and long live Stanley.